This is the Senior Living Truth Series podcast, where we have candid conversations about complex issues facing today's mature adults. No sales pitch, only the truth. I'm Dr. Nikki Buckaloo. Welcome to the show. So my name is Nikki Buckaloo. How many of you are first timers here? Couple people, awesome. All right, so let's give them a welcome. Thanks for being here. said earlier that this is now their hobby right I love it because if education is your hobby then that makes me really happy and uh, so a couple of quick just really I just want to take a couple of surveys of the room how many of you have now gone on a bus tour of the senior living communities raise your hand okay look around yeah several people we've had a probably a total of about 30 or 40 people uh, who have done different bus tours where we go and we, we go look at senior living communities because a lot of people don't do it on their own we just decided we do it as a group it's more fun and so um, we would encourage you to do that today on the back of your evaluation form uh, the typical stuff is on the front hey Chris yeah. can you see if we could do something about um, noise in there um, so the uh, the evaluation form on the back has the field trips and the, the the extra things that we're doing so let me tell you about those real quick so I don't forget because it has a tendency at the end of the day to skip my mind so the first one is at the top the legal resource day so we're going to have our panelists today talking about trucks wills probates and guardianships and what I found is that People leave here with kind of that question of, well, what about my specific scenario? What do I need? And so our panelists have agreed to do a day where they will set up 30-minute appointments with people at no cost at our office. Um, and you'll come in and just kind of lay out for them your questions. It's not a free, they're not going to build your trust for free, they're not going to write your will for free, they're not going to do all your paperwork for free, but what they're going to do is help you get your ducks in a row so that you do know what you need, and if you choose to hire them, fine, if you choose to go back to your family attorney, fine, they're not there to sell you on their services as much as make sure you're getting good advice about what you've got or you don't have. Does that make sense? Okay. So it'll be a short meeting, but it will be pointed and you'll bring your questions And So the way that this works is you'll check the box of the date and time or person that you wanna meet with. And you can meet with more than one, but we ask that you meet with one first, see if you get your needs met. If you don't, then maybe say I'd like to meet with, uh, like for instance, you may wanna meet with one of the attorneys first and then decide if you need to meet with Curtis at our best about trust, okay? Uh, or John about guardianship. So you'll check the box and then Naomi will call and schedule you for a time slot on that day. Okay, those of you who know Naomi from who calls you about the reminders. The second thing on there is the field trips. And I'm, I'm missed because we had to cancel the Spanish Cove field trip due to weather. So we have rescheduled that and it is now scheduled so you want to write this in next to Lionwood's field trip there for Thursday the 27th. Spanish Cove will be Wednesday, March the 4th. Wednesday, March the 4th. And we've already done field trips at Bradford Village and Concordia and the Fountains of Canterbury and Hefner Mansions. And so we had a really, how many of you went on one of those? Raise your hand. 
Yeah, several. We had a really great turnout on those. And let me tell you the purpose of those is that a lot of times people don't raise their hand in here to ask questions. And so what we've done is we've created a 15-person workshop only, 15 max, where we go to a community and you can ask deep dive questions. And we give you a worksheet to fill out if you want to use it. But um, you can really get your questions answered. There's a very short tour. And then um, that way you have you can get more in-depth information. If you're confused, you can get unconfused during those workshops. Okay? And then the last thing on the list is the bus tours, which I mentioned. And the, the goal of those is to get people out so that they can see some of these communities that they've never seen before. You may have driven by them. And you go, I wonder what that's like. Well, this is your opportunity to go in and do that. But more importantly, it is designed for you to grow comfortable asking questions and going in and, and taking a tour. What I found in, in being in real estate for all these years is I'll ask people when they say, I'm thinking about a retirement community. And I say, well, have you visited any? And they go, no. I'm like, well, if you haven't visited, how can you possibly know if you want to move there, right? So this gives you an opportunity to go kind of see, and so many people are surprised when they get inside. They go, I had no idea how nice these are and how, you know, well-pointed or whatever the services might be. So that's what the bus tours are. You'll want to add a couple of dates to that as well. Um, we have two more dates to add to that list, May 5th and November 17th. May 5th. And November 17th and don't ask what communities we're going to tour on those dates because it doesn't matter the goal is to grow accustomed to touring a community and then you can go tour any of them that you would like and we do a rotation so we'll be repeating some of the previous tours that we've done okay okay so last piece of housekeeping uh, maybe there may be two pieces of housekeeping so how many of you all visited the sponsor tables before you sat down? Most of you did, right? They bring some pretty amazing collateral material um, that goes with the topic. So pick that stuff up every month. Um, I know our team brought two pieces specifically related to the legal issues that we'll be talking about today as it relates to real estate. And so somebody else might bring something about how it relates to um, moving to a community or relates to um, health care. So just make sure that you're picking that stuff up and taking it with you. And Connie, what am I missing? Is that it? Did I cover it? Okay, then I guess other than coffee, coffee is back there now. So if you need to go get coffee, now's a good time to do it. All right, so just a quick announcement about this topic before I bring our panelists up. You know, we as educated people are inherently planners. Have you noticed that? Right. What if my house gets hit by a storm or my car? I have what for that? Insurance. What if I have a health care problem that's expensive? I have health insurance. Um, what happens if I take a long trip? I probably need to do what with my car first? Service it, right? So we are planners by, very, by the very nature of who we are. But there are a few things that have been studied that people are not planning for. Can you guess what they are? <laughs> Old age. More specifically though, death. Okay, now guess what? Because of all the commercials and the push of all the financial companies talking about retirement and all that stuff, people are doing a better job at planning for death, but what are they not planning for? Disability. 
right? So think about if someone has a stroke and they're not able to take care of themselves or manage their affairs, they're not thinking about that. Well, how many of you are really excited about thinking about that? I'm not, right? I hope that never happens. And yet what they've, they've found is that 70% of all people over the age of 65 will have at least one time that they need long-term care. And it could be, pop, it could be in, uh, just a short stint with long-term care or it could be chronic long-term care. But we don't know, and that's the big unknown, isn't it? We don't know what's going to happen with us, our spouse, or our loved ones. So would it make sense to plan, yes or no? Yes. So why do you think people don't do it? Scared. Cost. Don't know where to start. Don't know who to trust. Apathy. Complacence. Head in the sand syndrome. Right? Okay, so starting today, though, you're going to have the answers to a lot of those questions. You're going to have people you can trust. You're going to have some answers. You're going to know where to start. We can't help you with the cost issue. I will address this. There will be some costs in planning, but there are also, for people you may know out there that do not have the funds to do legal planning, there are some free legal services here in Oklahoma City. And if you're not sure how to locate them, they're not for people who have money but don't want to spend it. <laughs> Let me just be clear, they are for people who really do not have the funds but do need the legal work done. Is that fair? Yeah? All right, so with that, let's bring up our panelists and let's get rolling. Turn to your neighbor and say, make a plan because you're not getting any younger. <laughs> Jennifer, Curtis, John on the end. You guys get to share a mic. And Steve, I know you don't usually share well, but if you would today, that would be great. I'll try. All right. Good deal. These guys should all look very familiar to those of you who come regularly because they're here every month and they, they have been such great resources to us. And I have all of them on speed dial. And uh, there was a time where I had a real estate client that I was sitting in front of and uh, she said, I need you to list my mom's house. She has had a stroke and she needs to, we need to sell her house because she needs care and the only way we can pay for this care is if we sell her house and get the funds out of it. So I sat down with her and said, this was like at 6.30 in the evening for whatever reason, I think it was after she got off work. And she said, my sister, three sisters and I own the house together with my mom. It's deeded together. She said, we planned ahead. But mom just had a stroke and is incapacitated. And I went, oh darn. So on speed dial, I called Steve. He was on vacation at 6.30 in the evening. He called me or he answered. I think he probably regrets that. But he literally made an appointment with her to meet with him upon his return to get the guardianship started. So I'm going to tell you guys that these are not just folks sitting in a big corporate office. Jennifer answers the phone or emails me back, usually faster than I email her back, which is unfortunate on my end. I'm sorry about that, Jennifer. But these guys are always available when we sit and talk with them. These are real people, and they're not trying to sell you something you don't need. And I think that's what I appreciate about each and every one of them. So thank you guys for that. Okay. Um, so Steve Cortez, uh, local attorney at law. Tell them a little bit about your background, Steve. 
Sure, I have been an estate planning attorney for almost 20 years now. I've been in and out of the public sector serving uh, for Governor Henry's general counsel. And uh, I just really enjoyed doing estate planning. Nobody at my old firm wanted to do it, so I started doing it. And uh, I just enjoyed the relationship because it's kind of the one area of law that I've seen where I actually build a relationship with you. You're a heart person. Yeah. yeah, you are. You're a hard person. You care about people. And you do other types of law, too. I, I do, but I'm trying to now just focus on estate planning, right. trust administration, and probates. Perfect. Yeah. All right. Jennifer Wright. Good morning. Um, I'm Jennifer Wright. Hold that up a little closer, Jennifer. I've there been you. an attorney for 15 years. I've been practicing in estate planning and probate um, for the past 10 years. And um, before that, I did... I know. A couple of different things, um, litigation, and uh, just came into estate planning and really loved it. Like Steve said, it's all about building that relationship of trust with the clients and helping them through the hard times and um, just being there for them is really what I enjoy doing and uh, what I want to spend the rest of my career doing. So Awesome. I love it. And Mr. Curtis Kane. Uh, my name is Curtis Kane. I'm a trust officer with Arvest Bank here in Oklahoma City. Um, actually, born and raised here, but began my career in wealth management in 1996, working for a bank in uh, Connecticut, of all places. Uh, so I've been doing this for 24 years and uh, dealing with families, extended families, um, the entire time. You know, one of the things I learned about Arvest's trust and wealth management department was that they were doing some communities. Um, outreach where people can come in and sit down and go over their trust documents with them and all that stuff whether they had an account with them or not and that was like whoa really and so I was like oh well you know you're gonna go in and you're gonna sit down with them and then they're gonna say oh you need to get your checking account here oh you need a credit card with us and I was so happy and so pleased that um, that they really are it is a community service because I think it's because it's a it's a small local Bank. I shouldn't say local, it's more regional. We're, 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 we're in four states, we're large, this would be a, forgive me Lord, this is an overt commercial, but we're in four states, we're owned by the Walton family in Bentonville, Arkansas, but we operate as community banks and the, and the mandate that comes from the family is treat your, treat your customers, your community like they're your own, and so we have a very, very much a small bank community feel, but uh, anything but. And I don't think that's a commercial as much as it just speaks to why you're on the panel today. So thank you for that. Yeah. John. Good morning. My name is John Branscombe, and I'm a professional guardian and trust manager for small trusts. And John uh, didn't come by this just because he decided one day, hey, I'm going to go be a guardian. That sounds like a great idea. Um, he took care of his family, and his dad also took care of, of a, of a mentally ill family members so he came through this like a lot of us just kind of graduated into it due to a series of events and realized this was a needed thing and John does more than just guardianships too he also helps take care of people's financial affairs and personal needs on an hourly basis right okay all right so that's the background of these guys so we're trying to work on the mics and I apologize if there's a little bit of feedback Remember, this is only our second time at this venue, and so we're still trying to get the little um, nuances worked out. So what we're going to do is go through a series of myths and truths, okay? And you guys are familiar with this format. You have a handout at your table, and um, 
Curtis, I put one at your table. All right. Thought I did. All right. Curtis and I could be siblings, I think. So, all right. So, only I like you better than my sibling. Okay. So, where's the Claire's? Do not tell my dad that I talk about them. All right. First myth. You ready? What? Hey, oh, there they are back there. <laughs> Don't tell my dad I talk about it. A last will and testament is all I need to handle my personal affairs. So if I have a will, my planning is complete. So that's our myth. So talk to us a little bit about what a will does or doesn't do, and if that's kind of the end of the planning phase for people if they have that in place. So Jennifer, you've got the mic. I'll have you start with that. All right. So what a last will and testament does do is that it will give instructions as far as what you want to happen to your assets, your property, um, your stuff upon your death. Um, so a will doesn't do anything for you while you're alive. So if you become incapacitated um, and can no longer handle your affairs, that will that you have is not going to do anything for you. So that's where you need um, other documents in place to handle that incapacity and name somebody to uh, manage your affairs if you're incapacitated. Um, a will also, after your death, has to go through probate, and we may, we'll probably talk about that later, um, but a lot of people believe that, you know, a will is all you need and you, it doesn't have to be probated, but it actually does have to go through probate. Okay, so hold that thought for one second. Chris just mentioned that if we move those chairs up about one foot, we might be better off with the feedback, so we're going to try that. All right, now you guys are in the splash zone, so be careful. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right, so let's see how that goes. Okay, so that was that a good description of what a will does? Okay, so with, with that, um, Steve, I'm going to have you take the mic and talk to us about what makes a will a valid will versus a questionable or contestable will. We've kind of, I want to make sure we address that here. Sure. Um, well, the, I think the best will you can get is if you come to one of us um, because we're going to go through the we're going to ask you a lot of questions and we're going to make that will custom to exactly what you need uh, for your exact situation. But it needs to be in writing, uh, it needs to have your signature, it needs to be witnessed. Uh, we, need to, we like to have at least two witnesses and a notary present as well. Okay, so a lot of people are going on to Zip Forms or Rocket Lawyer or these online <coughs> services and they're whipping out these things. How do those play out in court? Yeah, the, the problem with those is they're written right for they're on the internet right so they're written kind of for a general audience so a lot of times what you're getting is language that they're hoping is going to cover in all 50 states and there might be provisions in Oklahoma law or whether you're in Texas Arkansas wherever you are that you may need specifically if that's where you're living and so we've had trouble this is a little off topic but we've had trouble recently with somebody who did a power of attorney off the internet and their power of attorney was literally a page and a half. Uh, ours, and I'm sure Jennifer's are the same way, they're, they're close to 50 pages. I mean, we try to cover as much as we can. Um, and we're in litigation now uh, with his, um, his stepkids over who gets to take care of the mom. 
because the power of attorney was done on the internet. Right. And there's one page. Now those 50 pages, if I recall from ours, it's lots of what ifs. If this, then that. If this, then that. Correct. Yeah. And the one pager just says, Good luck. Basically. <laughs> you don't even know this. You just know it's for you. It depends on which side of the uh, court battle right, you're right. on. Or not, you want to be. Okay. So uh, speak really quick and then we'll move to the next myth. But uh, when you say signed and notarized, you had mentioned, one of y'all mentioned to me the other day that if it's signed mom, that can be problematic. Right. We just had one again recently where. Uh, the, the mother had done an excellent will. She had got to an attorney here in town and they did a really nice will. Um, but then about four months before she passed away, she decided to write, I guess, another will. And so she took, literally took out note paper, like the little you know, notepads you get in the mail from people. And she wrote, dear family, I want this, I want that. So-and-so gets this, love mom. And that was it. And so, in that case, we were actually representing people who were getting written out of that note. And uh, so we went to court and we actually won because the judge agreed with us that it was not a valid will. Uh, first of all, it didn't really state who, who mom family was. Or who family Right, who the family was. Uh, it wasn't dated. Um, the date that it did look on, that did have on it, appeared to be in a completely different handwriting. Um, so there was just a lot of things wrong with it, and the judge agreed with us uh, that it was not a valid will. And then, uh, actually, on closer inspection, the other side agreed <laughs> as well <laughs> that it probably well, wasn't. There you have it. But they were going to try. Sure. You know, if we hadn't shown up at court, if that family hadn't hired us, they might have gotten away with it. Okay, so um, I'm going to go to the next myth here. So my, all my affairs can be handled both before and after death with a durable power of attorney. So Steve, you alluded to that power of attorney. And so like a will, it's only good for a period of time. So speak to that issue for me. Right, and I think the last time we talked here, um, or at least we, Curtis and I right. were on here, um, we asked the audience, who, who here thinks that a power of attorney continues after you pass away? And a huge portion a of you uh, yeah, raise their raised hand. their hand. And that's simply not true. Your power of attorney, dies when you die. And so that's a big difference. Yeah. So if you think that I've done this power of attorney so my kids can sell my house after I pass on, that, that power they hand us a power of attorney and we look at them and we're like, uh not you put that next to a death certificate and now we're in trouble, right? Because it doesn't it's not valid anymore. Um, what does a durable power of attorney handle? And I'll let Jennifer take this one. Just kind of give us an idea for those of us in the room that may have one. Uh, assuming that it's done correctly and covers all the bases, what should it cover? Um, as much as possible. So like Stephen said, uh, you know, the powers of attorney that, that we do are very comprehensive. So it's going to list, you know, all the different types of assets that you could own. And it's going to say that your power of attorney has the power to handle those assets. Um, what what we've seen in, in my practice is that financial institutions don't have to accept somebody's power of attorney. Uh, there's nothing in state law that would require a financial institution to accept a power of attorney. So if the power of attorney doesn't contain the specific provision that that financial institution is looking for or that their policies require, they can reject it 
And then the family will have to file a guardianship. And, and we had that happen um, a couple years ago where people were serving as a lady's power of attorney. She was in a nursing home and incapacitated. And they'd been carrying along fine for a number of years until they needed to take a distribution out of her retirement account. And her power of attorney didn't mention retirement accounts. It was a one or two page power of attorney. Um, and so we had to do a guardianship. And you know, my clients were had a hard time understanding why we couldn't force the bank to accept that document. Why can't you? There's nothing that requires them to accept it. So if it's not a comprehensive document, um, like I said, they they can reject it. And I don't know if Curtis, yeah, go ahead. Since he works at a financial as, as one banker in the room, it's not that the banks don't want to be cooperative, but if the power's not there, it can't be assumed. Even if you know it's the right thing to do, even if you know it's the wish of the of the of the the person, if the power isn't conveyed, if it isn't delegated, then we can't you know we can't accomplish. We as a bank cannot accept directions from someone who doesn't have that specific power. She talks about an IRA, for example. If someone went, there's a getting into the weeds a little bit, but if someone wants to make a distribution from an IRA to charity, but they don't have the ability to make doesn't specific, specify that they can make charitable requests, then it doesn't happen just because the power's not there. That's why the one and a half page document leaves a lot open, but it probably leaves a lot more closed in terms of things that may come up specific to that individual. Okay, so you open the door to the word guardianship. So I'm just gonna go down that path for a second. So, uh, so Jennifer, assuming that, okay, this durable power of attorney doesn't work because it doesn't state uh, what we need it to. So this person now has to go for guardianship. In order to do guardianship, they've got to go before the judge, right? Before the court. Correct. Okay, so who wants to start? You or John? Who wants to be the leader on this conversation? John? Okay. Um, so from the legal perspective, what happens is um, our state statutes outline, you know, the instructions on filing for guardianship. In the statute, there's an order of priority as far as who can serve as guardian. If the person designated during their lifetime um, who they wanted to serve as their guardian, then that person would take priority. So we look at their powers of attorney and those documents, if they had them, to see if they named somebody to be their guardian and then that person would serve. Otherwise, the statute is gonna kind of go down, you know, your closest relatives. So, you know, your spouse, if you don't have a spouse, adult children, um, and those people would have priority to serve. You have to file a petition for guardianship and you have to send notice to people so in the case that I mentioned, we had to send notice to some relatives of this lady that she'd been estranged for for a long time. Um, and I got some interesting phone calls after, after that. Um, so it is a court process. Those guardianship files in the court are, are closed files, so there is some privacy involved with that. So they're not, you can't go online and look up somebody's guardianship case in Oklahoma. Um, and okay, then, so hang on, so let me, let me ask you this. So they go, so let's assume there is no family that is either capable or that wants to serve. Mm -hmm. So now they've got a, the judge and the court basically then assign somebody, right? Right, so first they, first the court has to determine that the person's incapacitated. 
So in order for a guardian to be appointed, that's the first step is you have to prove that the individual is incapacitated. We usually do that through doctors. Um, and then if there's nobody able to serve, then that's where the court would appoint somebody and that's where John would come in. Okay, so John, take me through what that looks like when, because you've told me that sometimes it's a very formal process and other times it's a phone call from a judge. So talk to me about how guardianship is established from your perspective. What she's describing is a matter of relationships. If you have an attorney uh, who is like been in this a long time and done a lot of guardianships, they know all the judges. Uh, the judges, you know, uh, will take their word a lot more outside of a court hearing. But the court has to first of all declare the person that you're getting a guardianship over a ward of the court. That gives the judge jurisdiction to appoint someone to handle their affairs. And so it, it's easier today to be declared uh, insufficient. It used to be incompetency, but I've been in cases where a person sitting you know, in the witness stand talking with the judge, he was questioning them very gently and carefully, uh, you know, and they just said, you know, I need help taking care of my finances. You don't have to be crazy. You don't have to, you know, get knocked on the head and, and be deficient in any way. Just an admission that you need help in that case was sufficient for me to be appointed as guardian. So, John, how many uh, guardians can one person like yourself professionally take on at a time? Title 30 of the Oklahoma statutes limits uh, guardian to five guardianships with one exception. If you have a close relative who needs a guardian, then you can have a sixth. Okay, and so let's assume that, that you go through this process and you're assigned as the guardian of this adult person. And let's assume they are incapacitated. They're in a, a state where they can't make decisions. They really can't give you guidance. How do you know what to do? Well, you have to kind of be a jack of all trades, a master of none. Real world experience, you know, lends a lot to a guardian or someone who's been doing it a long time. You just encounter a whole lot of different situations. Sometimes you have to do a little research. Sometimes you have to call somebody like Curtis on a financial matter or the, one of these two fine attorneys on legal matters and they, they give you advice on how to proceed. And then sometimes you have to go file paperwork, go back to court and get that approved and then you proceed from there. So are you overseen by the court system, what you do and don't do for that person? Not directly. I mean, we have an adversarial system of justice here, so unless someone stands up and says, I object to what's going on, and they file paperwork, typically the only, the only thing that I have to do is make an annual <coughs> report to the court within 60 days of the end of the guardianship. And I usually run a guardianship on a calendar year basis. If I'm appointed in April, you know, April 1st to March 31st is the guardianship year. And I have to keep track of all income and expense and report that back to the court. That is distributed as a matter of course to any family members that are entitled to receive it. So they have a chance to ask questions or object. A lot of times they don't object, but you know, sometimes you clarify things. And so uh, that's approved and you go on to the next guardianship year. So and John, how, how are you paid? At the time you file your annual report, you apply for uh, compensation for your time for the last 12 months. So you don't get paid for a year? You work for a year before you get your first paycheck. So lest you think there are a bunch of people going, I want to be guardian for a living, 
you got to take that into consideration, right? You got eat, eat that up with a big wooden spoon. That's right, yeah. So before we move on from guardianship, Jennifer, you or Steve, do you want to share what you like or don't like about the guardianship system here in Oklahoma? Is there anything specific that they should know about that? Well, specifically, I, I like to think of nobody likes to go through probate, first of all. Um, I consider a guardianship a living probate. Um, it's, there's a lot of emotions going. Um, you're basically asking a judge who you don't know, right? We don't know which judge we're gonna get in Oklahoma County. You're basically asking that judge to make decisions for your loved one, to give you the power to make decisions for your loved one. Um, that's tough. It's taking the control out of your hands right. and putting it in the hands of the court. Right. Okay. And I'm sure if you have a conversation with either Jennifer or I, people are surprised at how much time we spend talking about what happens to you right now. Because a lot of times people think estate planning is what happens when you pass away, right? I mean, that's, if I ask anybody in here, that's probably, well, that's, that's what happened once I die. But it's not, if, you're, if you have a good uh, estate plan, a client-centered estate plan, a you-centered estate plan, you're gonna have uh, provisions in there for what happens while you're still living. And when we have to go to a guardianship proceeding, it means that you didn't do that. It means that you were kind of like that client that I told you about who downloaded a power of attorney off of the internet that was a page and a half long. And we're now in litigation with the stepkids. And that's tough. So really the guardianship is kind of the result of no advance planning. Right. Okay, got it. Okay, so um, I know there'll be more on that topic, but for now let's keep going. So hold that thought. Um, so, oh, I was gonna say this on that guardianship thought. I read somewhere, tell me if I'm right, that one of the number one um, areas where we're seeing guardianships is that nursing home administrators are taking guardianship of residents in nursing facilities, mainly for the purposes of getting paid. So they've got somebody who's been paying them regularly for whatever reason something happens. They're now, they're now in, unable to manage their finances and the nursing home's not getting paid. So the administrator goes to the court and says, I need guardianship of this person so I can actually pay their bill. Now, is that scary to anybody? Yeah. yeah. I don't really want that person taking charge of my finances. Can we all agree on that? But if you are 101 years old and you've outlived all of your relatives, think about that. And your one son or daughter or niece or nephew was paying your bills and now they're gone. Somebody's got to do that. And that's why I say that it's so important, the what ifs. <laughs> because remember y'all came to the seminar about what if I live to be how old? 100? What about 110? or 15, or we're seeing 16 to 18 now. So we're not talking about death as much as we're talking about the between now and then, right? Okay, so let's talk about money again. Um, we talked about wills and powers of attorneys and trusts we're gonna talk about. So the reason I hear a lot of people say that they don't create a trust is because it's cheaper to create a last will and testament than it is to create a trust. So, uh, Talk to me about the benefits of a trust over a will, and then also the kind of that myth about costs, if you will. Steve, you want to start? Yeah, sure. So first thing, when we you come into our office, um, or if you come to our <coughs> workshop, yeah, workshop, yeah, our workshop. Yeah. Um, you know, first we want to talk about what what your situation is, right? You know, what is your specific situation? Because 
Um, although I think a, a revocable living trust is really the best option, there are certain situations out there where a will is all you need. Is all you need. So it really just depends on you, and that's what we're trying to do, right? Create you-centered estate plans. Um, as far as costs go, though, um, I did uh, a calculation. I said I did a video. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I did a video recently where I, I literally went through the calculation of let's do a trust, a trust cost, and I think in that video I just I made up the number and say cost five thousand dollars for a husband and wife to do an estate plan. Okay, you have the opposite problem, Jennifer. Oh, you got to come down. Yeah, right here. Okay. Yep. okay. Sorry. <laughs> um, is that better? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then what, is it, what does it cost to do a will? And then how much does it cost over the years to do uh, updates to your will? How much does it cost to do updates to your estate plan? How much does it cost once the first spouse passes away to do the probate if you had a will and not a revocable living trust, right? Um, so right now we're looking at probates depending on which one, whether you can do a summary probate or a regular probate, you're looking possibly $3,500 to $7,000. Um, we've got two right now that are over $30,000 um, in their costs. That's for the probate? For the probate, just for the probate, because they had a will and not a revocable living trust. So um, in the example, we just, I think we did like $7,000 for, for probating the will, okay? So as we went through and then the, sec the, the other spouse passes away, so that's another $7,000. So we compared that and I think the cost was around, it was $12,000 cheaper uh, to go with a revocable, revocable living trust centered estate plan. So up front, it's going to cost you a little bit more money, but over the, the term of your lifetime, um, it can actually be cheaper to have a revocable living trust because you, you also got to take into, into account all the things. If you just got a will and you didn't get power of attorneys, you didn't take care of any of your incapacity, then at some point you're looking at a guardianship, right? Li living probate. Is there a fee for doing a guardianship, by the way? Yes, absolutely. And so they're, they cost really almost as much as a probate does. Um, the one we're doing right now, where I talk, like, I'm going to keep referring to this gentleman who has the one and a half page thing. Um, we are already, I think we're at $8,000, um, and we're probably about two thirds of the way through. So he's probably going to spend total about twelve dollars or $15,000 uh, just in legal fees. And what if somebody doesn't have the money to do that? Yeah, it's, it's a tough situation. So then they have a public defender type person or a right. legal aid person doing Somebody. this? Yeah. yeah, not you guys though. No. No, you get paid to do this. Yes. Yes, okay. All right, just being clear, because everything you do costs money, and the question is, is it gonna cost me more to do it now, or is it gonna cost my state or me later? to do it later. Yeah, can I say something about a yeah, free clinic? Sure. Um, so in Oklahoma County, uh, part of the estate planning, uh, what would you call it, FAR committee? <laughs> yeah, we, we do have a clinic, um, and I, volu I volunteer there twice a month, and other attorneys volunteer there as well. And if, if you truly don't have any money at all, you can go and a judge will actually um, fill out a form and say that you don't have any money, and you can, They'll, we will help you go through a free probate um, and a free guardianship. Uh, we, can't, we cannot appear at the hearings for you, but we will help you fill out all the paperwork if you truly have yeah. no money. Gotcha. So that service is out there for... Perfect. Okay. There, are, yeah. there are a couple other resources, you know, if you know anybody um, that are out there like that. So there's legal aid and then there's also um, Trinity Legal Services and I, our firm volunteers through them and we've done um, you know a probate through
through them uh, for free. So the person still has to pay their court costs, though, for those programs. So the well. best thing you could probably do, Jennifer, in this case, if they have a friend or somebody from church that they know that needs these services, they could contact one of us or one of you to sure. say, what is that free service that you talked about? And we can direct them, right? Correct. Perfect. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, Curtis, I want you to just talk a little bit about on um, trusts. Um, you know, we're talking about the... Uh, someone developing a trust and creating a trust you guys actually manage trusts right you don't create them correct right and so what does it mean to manage a trust as a corporate trustee well we, we in the in the case of corporate trustees someone has you know husband and wife an individual whoever um has has either used a will or a trust they're they're, they're developing their estate plan and Curtis. Give me a little more rock star action. Okay. There you go. I felt like it was right under. No, I know it does, but to them it doesn't. Yeah. Okay. So whether it's a will or it's a trust document, they've they've hired a corporate fiduciary to step into the role as the personal representative or the successor trustee. That's where the bank comes into play. Um, in in many cases, people don't have anybody who can manage their their estate for them, uh, so they hire a professional. Um, that means we take take on that role. We take on all the fiduciary duties, which are are codified. They are very well spelled out. And if you know what you're doing, if you know your job, it's a it, the rule book's pretty pretty well established. It's been out there for hundreds of years through through common law and now through education and practice. So we take on a role where we we take the document. The document in my world is an operating manual. It tells me how to make the machine work. Um, if it's a good document, machine works well. That's the bad. trust you refer the to. The trust or the will. Okay. If those documents are well drafted and suit the circumstance, then they operate well. If not, not. And that's where um, you know the, the online uh, documents that people might use could not be the worst uh, selection sometimes, and sometimes it works, but it, it comes down to the necessity of the, of the individual. The other thing we talked about when we do document reviews, I'm not an attorney, I'm not a CPA, I don't play one on television, but I'm, a, I'm 24 years in this business of reading those documents. I know what sins, you know, makes the hair on my neck stand up, and I know when a yellow flag and red flag pops up, and that's when I go to my friend, client, um, whoever, whoever's document we're reviewing, and I go, I see a problem here. We either need to go back to the attorney who drafted it, or we need to call an attorney who works on this uh, you know, in this field, um, to, to take a good assessment to, to, to determine whether you've got a legal issue here that needs to be that needs to be corrected. Um, I use a medical analogy all the time. If uh, if you've got a knee problem, don't go to a dentist. Um, if you've got a dental problem, don't go to an orthopod. So we've got people who specialize in this in these things, and that's who we rely on for 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 legal assessments. We can talk about administrative issues all the time. But we have to know where to draw the line when it comes down to tax and, and legal, and we rely on our our uh, associates to, to, to help us with that. So is there a reason why someone would want somebody like you guys to be the trustee or the trust manager as opposed to, say, their oldest son or oldest daughter? You know, every case is different, but when someone, you know, when we sit down with somebody who's already already has a document, I'll ask that question. I see you've named... John Jr. as your successor trustee is the reason why you did that and, and probably more often than not they go well who else could I name but sometimes we ask the question if, if that were not your child is that who you'd want handling your final affairs and more often than not the answer is absolutely not but who else would I use and it's because it's complicated not to mention the fact that I mean I guess 
the simplest form would be if you've got an only child serving because they are presumably your only beneficiary, but when you've got four kids, I'm the youngest of four, um, we get along far worse than Nikki and I get along, so there's nothing but infighting that comes, <laughs> comes into that. You put one child in the role of the successor trustee, they have by definition a conflict of interest with their siblings, yet they're expected to have undivided loyalty to each one of them, and that's really challenging to do. And then the other part is that the, the nature and the composition of assets can be very complicated. Uh, professionals are in the business of asset management every day. Some, you know, if you're, you know, if, if your uh, successor is not someone who's experienced in dealing with financial assets, real property, mineral property, uh, uh, cow-calf operation, an operating hotel, a business, or whatever, then you need to think really long and hard about who would be the best, most best suited person to continue the, the mm -hmm. you know, kind of keep the ball rolling. Yeah, so what I, you know, it's interesting, I have family members that have uh, a, a one, a, what do you call it, a one child, sole sibling, only child, thank you, sole sibling, <laughs> that was awesome, I got my PhD a couple years ago and my vocabulary has gone to crap, so my normal everyday vocabulary, so here's the deal about that is, guess what, she is in her 20s, they had a late life child. It's tough, guys. If if he if she inherited everything through and she's their successor trustee, she would have no clue what to do at this age. She's just not mature enough. And then there are some people that just don't want to. So I think to your point, uh, if you want to preserve your assets, then someone else can oversee that. Um, well, and that's I mean, in this day and age, you deal more with it, and I, I know, this sensationalizes the issues, but they're very common. You deal with people who have marital problems. So if you've got a daughter only child, doesn't have to be a daughter, you have an only child who's in a troubled marriage or you've got a manipulative uh, uh, son or daughter-in-law who you don't trust, there's, there's, a, there's a yellow flag, there's a cautionary flag. Yeah. For me, that's something I want to talk about. If you've got a child, I ask, I ask very pointed questions. I go, tell me about your child. Do they have, you know, you really got to sometimes dig, but after 20 plus years of doing this, you kind of get a sense of you know where 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 you're going very early in the conversation, so you can kind of nibble away at that. You don't want to be too intrusive, but sometimes you find out that that child may have had some sort of you know issue. There could be mental illness. There could be addiction. I there could be marital problems. Yeah, yeah, you run into it. that all along. Yeah. So I mean, that's that, those are just sort of the things that you get. Truth series, Curtis. Just say it. Truth series. Everybody's got a crazy one in the family. Everybody. <laughs> Everybody. All right. Mine happens to be Curtis. Okay. Okay. I love you, Curtis. I wish we were related. Okay. So let's go with, we're going to talk about probate. And keep in mind that we, there's no way we're going to make it through all these today. So what we're going to do is we're going to finish at noon and then, or at 11, sorry. And then you guys are going to ask whatever questions you have that are pertinent. Okay. So I want to talk about probate because we've mentioned that. So let's assume someone doesn't do a trust, they or they did do a trust, and there are some circumstances where they still have to do probate. Jennifer, you've got the mic. Um, what does a probate involve here in Oklahoma? Well, like Steve said, um, probate and guardianship are similar. Um, with probate, obviously the person is deceased and there are assets that need to be distributed. So we file a petition for probate and somebody is going to be appointed as the personal representative to take charge of that estate, gather the assets, and then 
Um, the court oversees the whole process. So Oklahoma is a little bit different than some other states. No kidding. Yes. That's just always different. Always yes. different. So um, we have, you know, we have people that call us and maybe they live in Texas, but their loved one lives here and they have a hard time understanding why our probate process is so involved because their procedure in Texas is much different. Um, so a typical uncontested probate uh, from start to finish is about six months, um, but it could take up to a year. If you have uh, any complications or something's contested, it can go on for several years. And during that time, they're paying legal fees and, and having to presumably right. show up in the courtroom for some of that, right? Correct. Okay. All right. So you mentioned something earlier, Steve. Uh, one of you talk about, you called it a summary probate. What is that, Jennifer? So a summary administration probate is Oklahoma's short probate procedure, and it's only available for certain estates. So the estate um, has to be one where either the person died more than five years ago or they lived in another state at the time of their death but owned property in Oklahoma. So we see that a lot where maybe somebody died in California but they own mineral rights in Oklahoma. So those mineral rights have to go through probate. Some people don't realize that, but um, that is true. Um, or if the estate is under a certain amount and that's set by statute, I think right now it's 200,000, so it's been that way for a while. So if the total assets of the estate are under 200,000, you might be able to do a summary administration probate, um, but that's gonna depend on the circumstances. If there are creditors or any other complication, then it really won't work to do that procedure. Steve, you talked the other day to Chris something about a probate we were doing a house sale on, and you said from now on blank. What was that you said? I forget how you said that. So when you do a summary probate, um, you're doing everything at the very beginning. Um, the only thing you're not doing is determining who the actual heirs are. That doesn't happen to the very end. And so in Oklahoma, you can do, there, there's two ways to sell a property here, here during a probate process. Um, and the title companies have taken the position that if you're doing a summary probate, you cannot sell the house during the probate because the heirs have not been determined. So there's nobody there to give legal consent to sell the house. Um, whereas when we do a regular probate, um, one of the first things you do is you file a petition and 30 days from filing the petition, you actually have a hearing where at that, at that 30 day hearing, you we normally, well we always do, we name a personal representative unless somebody comes to uh, fight it. And we also usually at that time will have the judge determine who the actual heirs are. And because the judge is making that judicial determination at that 30-day point, then we can proceed with a sale of real estate. Okay. So, can I, so, yeah, Curtis, you I want was to just going to interject. It's completely off script, but this is a great example of the, the trade-off between probate and trust planning because it, there's a trust in place that has what's called power of sale, which 9,909, you know, all of them do. Um, <laughs> That property, I don't go to court to get permission to sale. I can sell it the day I became, the, the, 
on any given day, you've got the power to sell, we would sell it. We wouldn't be spending the time going to court asking for permission. Well, and people wonder why is that so important? Because here's the thing. We, Linda uh, and her group back here with Director's Assurance have talked about funeral costs. So the person passes away, now you've got a six-month probate where you can't sell the house. And if you're counting on the proceeds of that house to pay for your funeral, you're in trouble. And so that's why we say that your, your funeral planning and your financing of your end of life celebration of life or memorial service, whatever you want to refer to it as, if you're counting, like my dad, he said, well, just sell the house and use that money. I'm like, well, great. So you're going to wait six months for us to do what we need to do, right? So you kind of have to think about that. If you don't have money sitting in a bank for that or you don't have your funeral planning, that's why I think to me probate is a scary process because it can go on and on and on and on. So you, you'll have to be in cold storage for a while. I think they charge for that too. Yeah. Okay, just yeah. we actually have that exact thing happening right now where the the, the family was kind of estranged from the father. I mean they, they had good times and bad times, uh, but they literally have no money to bury him and he is in cold storage right now until we can go through or they can get the, either the money or they can sell the house to bury him. Which means the family's not getting closure either, by the way. I make jokes about that, but the family is in limbo. Yeah. I was just going to talk about the sell of a house in a probate. Um, so like Steve said, we can't do that in a summary administration, but in a regular probate, there are you know, two routes you can go with that. If everybody agrees, it's it's pretty simple um, but if you like if you don't know where one of the heirs is and it, they may not be a beneficiary you have to get permission from all the heirs at law um, so if you don't have that the sale procedure is pretty lengthy and things can go wrong so I was just telling Stephen before this we had one that was set for a confirmation of sale hearing and the day before the hearing I found out it looked like the newspaper had not published our notice. So you have to publish notices of these proceedings in the newspaper, which would mean we would have to get a new hearing date and push off the closing on the house and all these things. It turns out they did publish. They just didn't um, file their affidavit. So it worked out fine. But those are the kinds of things that can go wrong that end up costing more money to the family and the estate. Well, and I'll tell you, that's where Chris Buckley, you will see his head explode, is we're selling a house in probate and the attorney hasn't done their job and he's flipping out because you have a closing date set and if it doesn't close, that buyer can walk away, right? So he's like, that attorney, they didn't do their job, I'm gonna have to do their job for them. It's never been these guys. We usually try to refer them, the client to them because we know they'll do it right, but some people go online and Google it, I guess. So. Um, okay, so let's keep going. Uh, one more question, then we're going to open it up for questions. Um, I've, I've talked about the uh, eldest child. We've talked about probate. We've talked about unbiased. Um, so if you don't have, I just want to reiterate this, the first one on the second page. If there are no... You are not an attorney. But his opinion as a non-attorney who plays one on television, as a real estate agent, is that if you have a property, it should be in a trust. If you want to make it convenient for your family, one with one trustee, please do not name all three of your children as equal trustees who have to decide. Matter of fact, we just see your family not be involved, if at all possible. 
get Curtis. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's funny because you're gone. I mean, if you're if we're talking about post death, you're gone, you're gone, I don't really care. We care because we're the ones having to clean up the mess that's left afterward. And if you don't care and you have a spouse, then your spouse is having to clean up the mess. If you care about them at all, uh, I truly believe that some spouses leave the mess on purpose. Just saying. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> we've talked about guardianship. We've talked about who can serve. Uh, let me ask this. Uh, uh, John, how many guardians professional guardians are there out there in Oklahoma like you, just out of curiosity. Do you know that? No others out there? There are no really others out there. Use your mic, please. Use that mic for me. So my question then is if you're if you're at capacity, you have your five plus one potentially, how do they determine who to assign? They find a guardian uh Sometimes attorneys will do it. A guardian may lie them sometimes. Uh, it could be anybody then. It could, it could be anybody. And that's where we see elder fraud a lot, unfortunately. Okay. So, um, I'm going to go ahead and open it up. Y'all ready? Sure. Yeah, because we've covered a lot of what's on here. So, if you want to say anything before I do. John? I just wanted to regress and give you a little revelation on powers of attorney. We talked about that first. There's one entity that you need to know will not discuss anything with the power of attorney, and that is the Social Security Administration. Yeah. If you try to call them on the phone, I'm power of attorney for so-and-so, they're right here. They say put them on the phone. If they're not capable of giving their responses or answering questions, you don't get anything done. They will not honor powers of attorney. But they will guardians. They have to. They will guardianships. Right. Yes. So a guardian, if you go, I don't. I'll use my words. Tell me if I'm right. But a guardianship is like it is with your children. My children, when they were minor children, were they were my responsibility. Everything that happened with them, I could oversee it. I could give permissions, and I was ultimately responsible for them. The way it was put to me early on by an attorney was, you control who they see and when they see them what they eat and what they put in their mouth and when. It's ultimate. It really it is, is like ultimate control. Child. Yeah, and nobody wants that for themselves, which is why I'm so adamant about people doing this planning process. Okay, who's got the first question? I'll take yours and then I'll come over to this side. Yes, sir. What if your real estate is tied up in a reverse mortgage? What if your real estate is tied up in a reverse mortgage? You want me to answer that or you want to answer that? It, it's just like any other mortgage. It can be sold and then that reverse mortgage is paid off uh, with the proceeds. I, I will say that, uh, Go ahead. <laughs> um, what we've run into with a couple reverse mortgage people where we've actually, people came to us and did everything correctly. Uh, we put the house into the revocable living trust. Uh, for whatever reason, the reverse mortgage wants you to take the house out of the trust. Oh, really? That's um, new. An, 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 and they won't give you the mortgage otherwise. I, I don't know why. Um, one of them actually told us that um, once it's out and they give the mortgage, you can put it back in, but for whatever reason, they don't want it in when they actually write the mortgage. For the trust, okay. Curtis, you wanna to add to that? Well, this is a question, and I'm not sure who's gonna have the answer. And if your question was in the context of at death, what happens with the reverse mortgage? My question is what happens with the reverse mortgage for someone who's placed under guardianship who might've been drawing installments on that mortgage and needs it to survive. And now who owns the house? Well, the ownership hasn't changed because they're still alive, but who's gonna make their financial, 
who's going to be able to make the draws if it's, you know, I'm, I'm not familiar yeah. enough with reverse mortgages, but this is where you're pulling equity out if you need that equity because that's why people do it to survive. To keep, well, uh, keep so a reverse mortgage is simply a FHA-insured loan. It's just a different type of loan. So how, Steve, to your yeah. to his point, how Yeah, I mean, I think it would still be the guardian who's in charge of because they, yeah. when you get a guardianship, they have Ultimate authority. Yeah, ultimate authority over all of your finances and and you your being. So yeah. don't do it. <laughs> don't, yeah. don't, don't, don't don't put your family don't put your family through a guardianship. Now what would happen, let's just talk about in the case that someone uh, needs a guardian, has to go into nursing care or assisted living or memory care and their finances are being overseen, then that guardian would then potentially need to liquidate that property because you only have a year. If you're not, a, if you're not living in that residence as a primary resident, you can only have up to a year to do that. And then that property's gotta be sold and that loan has to be satisfied. So the guardian can take care of all that, right, John? Yeah. Does that make sense? If, if you have additional questions about reverse mortgage specifically, come talk to us after because that's a different animal in and of itself. It kind of depends on your, your circumstances. Yep. Okay. I saw your hand up, sir. Yeah. It's a question for John. If you can only be a guardian for five people, how does that keep you busy enough to give you a living wage? The answer is you do something else. So the question was, how can you make a living wage if you're only doing five guardianships? Yeah. So. so what five people do you know can pay you enough money to support you to the lifestyle you would like every year? That's your problem when you are a guardian. Yeah. So I took up managing trust because those are, they, you build different, you get paid different, you don't have to get court approval. A guardian has to get approval from the court before he gets paid. And they wait and see if uh, you've given notice to everybody. If anybody objects, then you have to have a hearing, find out why they object, could hold up payment. That very seldom happens. What we're talking about having to liquidate a house when someone's in a nursing home and they haven't made decisions about their assets, that, that's pretty much my typical case. I've cleaned out 10 houses since 2001 and put them on the market and sold them. I'm not in the real estate business, but it comes along with what I do. And John, you charge by the hour, That's so right. speak to that a little bit, would you? Uh, if I'm on the clock for you, then I'm charging $80 an hour in most cases. And if I'm not on the clock for you, I'm not charging you. Okay, and so how does it differ, Curtis, you guys manage trusts, and John, you just said you can manage trusts. How does one know whether or not Arvest Wealth Management is right, or somebody like John or an attorney is right? You asked. Um, I, I have, a, I have a, a text message from an attorney that said, what's your minimum? And they're asking about, how, you know, in terms of assets under management or what's your minimum fee or things of that sort. We are uh, corporate trustees, banks, trust companies. You think of the institutional sort of trustee. They're all going to charge based on assets under management. The fees can be anywhere on the map, but it's going to be a small map. Uh, if you go to some of the very large international banks, I might not use Bank of America because they don't have a presence here but their fee is going to be somewhere north of 1.5% of assets under management. Uh, ours, I can tell you because I know what our fees are, are begin at 1% of assets under management, and that's an annualized fee. 
and the way I get people to understand, or I try to get people, help people understand, is by comparing it to what you pay for a fee-based manager, asset manager, or investment advisor. If you're if you're investing, and I could defer my the the sponsor with Edward Jones, but in, in many cases, if you're buying a mutual fund, mutual fund itself has an internal expense that you may or may not be aware of, and you may not may or may not see, but you're paying a fee for for investment management in your investments one way or another, visibly or invisibly. When you hire a trustee, you look at their resources to, to manage assets and how they do that. We, we do the investment management internally. We do all the administration internally. So our 1% or it, it can range up to 1.21 1 and a quarter, 1.25, but that's sort of all in. Um, and so you also have a team of people so at your disposal, so you're not just one person managing one person's trust. Exactly. You have we're, people we're, with different We're areas. bringing in yeah. all of the resources you would ever need. I, I came from the real estate world. That's how I got into the trust business, managing pretty much high-end real estate. But I've sold hundreds and hundreds of properties through the states and through trusts. But we also have occasion to manage. I was going down sort of a litany of lists. In Oklahoma, you're dealing with real estate, mineral properties operating farms, ranches, so you've got to be able to deal with, you know, cow-calf operations, you've got to understand the commodities business, you know, farming, ranching, all those sorts of things. So you either have a lot of knowledge or you've got teammates who can help you with that. But that's just, by analogy, it's, it's, it's kind of a, you take your pick. John and I collaborate because there's some trust that where it makes no sense to try to hire an institution like us because he's better suited. Where it's it's a lot closer to a guardianship or a a, a much smaller estate. And it's a personal relationship, right? So it John, for, it is for both. Yeah. Yeah, or it should be. If it's not, then you're at the wrong Correct. place. But it should be no matter what. But it's a matter of finding. It's not a matter. It, forgive me. It's not a question of whether there needs to be someone to fill that role. It's just making sure you get the people that suit the circumstance best. So. I was joking about the minimums. I, I don't like to answer that question because I say, "Tell me that let's let's talk about the case first because let's d determine the need and how to best fulfill it." And sometimes that's with us. Sometimes it's without us. And sometimes it's with John. And, and we just try to help people find the best solution. Yeah, great. That's a great. All right, I saw a hand back here, and then I'll come up front. Yes, back in the back. Uh, I have a trust like it's like six or seven years old. Does it need to be? Reviewed, updated. Okay, so the question is, he has a trust, it's about six or seven years old. Does it need to be reviewed, updated? How would he know that? So what I like to do is, if I do a revocable living trust center to state plan for you, then I want to meet with you once a year at no cost. I just want you to come into our office, have a cup of coffee with us, um, and let's just have a discussion about any changes that have happened, either personal or financial in your lifetime. Uh, because a lot of times <clears throat> you guys don't think about something having an effect on your estate plan. Um, what if you now have a grandchild or there's two more grandchild children now in your family? You may want to provide for them. Or one of your kids gets divorced. One of your kids gets divorced um, or they get married. Mm -hmm. We put it in the context. We, the answer to the question is yes, it should be reviewed. And here's my quick answer is you can't review it too much, but you can certainly review it too infrequently. But absolutely, anytime there's a life event, so whether that affects you directly, your extended family, it, could be, it could be, it could be the, the. I put some notes on here. A divorce is a big one, but also, you know, if you've got an individual you've named as a successor or as your your personal representative, your executor, and you find out, oh, I was, you know, thinking about Julia, and uh, yeah, I just heard she was diagnosed with fill in the blank. 
Curtis, you know, I wonder about this too, you guys, is I, I've heard a lot of people I talk to when I say, do you have a trust? And they say, yeah, and they dig it out and it's covered in dust and the attorney has since passed away or retired. So if you didn't draw it up, how does that work? They bring that trust to you drawn up by another attorney. How does it work as far as reviewing? Reviewing, yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so if it's an old trust, um, especially if it's done in the 90s, because the tax laws were a lot different back then, um, then I'm most likely 99% of the time going to say we're going to restate it completely with whatever the current language is uh, when you come in. Um, but yeah, I mean, if it's if it's a really old trust, then we probably want to uh, completely restate it. We probably want to look at who your successor trustees are, your power of attorney, who your power of attorneys are, who are, who are the backups for those. Um, you know, right now, I'll just use my, my, myself as an example. Um, right now, my sister is my successor trustee. I'm 51 years old. Guess what? She's 49 years old. So the older I get, she's not going to stay at 49. She's going to be getting older too, right? And so at some point, she's not going to be the right person for me, even though I trust her implicitly um, to carry out all of my wishes, medically, um, financially, everything. At some point, she's going to be too old for that job too. And so that's when I think you really need to look at guys like uh, Curtis and John, um, independent third parties who are are not or who are going to be above the family squabbles that could happen. Because you guys all know your kids, right? And your grandkids. Some of them are great with money, and some of them you want to trust trust with ten bucks, <laughs> and and some of them you want making your medical decisions. Some of them you don't want anywhere near the hospital. So and you can have two different trustees, right, Curtis uh, or Steve? Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead, Curtis. Well, I was, I was going to kind of expand on your comment, too. Um, well, yes, you can have as many trustees as you want to. I don't fully subscribe to that, but it's, it's, and it's going to go contrary to what I'm getting ready to say. And that is, just because an attorney drafted a trust, that means a good trust. Right. Kind of gets back to my medical analogy. So, in, in reviewing from an administrator, from a trustee's, or not trustee's, but a trust professional's perspective, it doesn't cost you anything. It's not going to be a legal opinion. It's going to be sitting down talking about what you're trying to accomplish. I can read your document and tell your story and then ask you, does that sound like your story? And if someone goes, no, that's not the way I wanted it to work, I go, then I think you need to have this reviewed by a professional. The other thing is, and I can't remember if it's 2006, but when, you know, it, you know, don't raise your hand if you don't have a retirement plan, IRA, 401k, or anything of the sort. But the vast majority of people's worth now, you know, net worth, is tied up in retirement plans. But you've got to have specific language in your trust document that allows that to continue in trust if you've got a beneficiary you don't want getting it in their hot little hands. Otherwise, there's there's no way of, of, of keeping that in trust over a long period of time. Well, so, so can I, oh, go ahead. So there, there can be very fatal flaws that were perfectly legal 20 years ago that don't, don't accomplish what you need them to accomplish today. So the answer to the question is, I tell people when we get named in a document, it goes into a, we archive it, we, we re review the document, we put notes together, but we also put a tickler in there to, to, to circle back to that client every three years at minimum, just to go back and go, hey, it's been three years, we're gonna take a look at your trust, but has anything changed? So we, it, we have that conversation. If something changes, then I said, then you need to go talk to Jennifer or to, or to, to Steve or whoever your attorney is because they need to be aware of a material change in your, in your life. And I just, I'm not a finance guy, so the Edward Jones guy can probably ask, answer this better. Uh, but a recent change uh, recently in federal law has to do with this, it's called the SECURE Act on IRAs. So some of you may have already heard that before you could continue the distributions over people's lifetimes. Um, now when an IRA, depending on the situation, 
um, you, you have to take complete distribution within 10 years. That's a huge change. So, you know, when people were thinking that distribution was going to be over their lifetime, all of a sudden, um, you know, there's tax implications, they're all kind of, and I, like I said, I'm not a finance guy, but I just bring that, that's the kind of thing, reason why you need to come in and have your estate plan reviewed uh, every year. Can, can you address, and whatever you want to address, but I don't want to forget this part, because you guys always emphasize with me how having a trust is one thing, but having it funded is a different thing, oh, sure. so piggyback on that Yeah, one. and just to reiterate uh, what Stephen said, certainly for your trust, sir, that you mentioned six or seven years ago, mm -hmm. These recent tax changes, we're going back and you know visiting with all of our clients to see if we need to update the provisions in their trust um, on retirement accounts. So, and that's another benefit of having a trusted advisor versus doing your own estate plan is you're not going to have that person that you can call up when you have a question. Yeah, Rocket Lawyer is not going to give you a heads up that you need to go download yeah. a new form for that. Yeah. So the what Nikki's. Um, speaking to you about funding your trust. So a trust will only control the assets that are in the trust. So the first step is to get the planning in place, to get your trust in place. And the next step is to make sure all your assets are transferred into the trust. So that would be your house, your cars, your bank accounts. Now retirement accounts are kind of a separate thing. So with those we work on um, your beneficiary designations because a retirement account has to be owned by an individual so that's a little bit different but pretty much everything else you want to be owned by the trust what usually gets missed Jennifer when you guys see trusts that aren't funded um, mineral rights I mean in my case that's number one and maybe it's because the people didn't even know that they owned them and they find out later um, other things that might be missed are like uh, stock like they forgot that they owned this individual stock that maybe wasn't being managed, you know, by a broker or something, and that didn't get transferred. What about like a bank account? Yeah, bank accounts can be missed too. So for your bank accounts are pretty easy to put into a trust, um, and most banks are familiar with how trusts work, and it's it's not an issue. There are a couple of banks that we do have on our bad list but. <laughs> but you know what's funny to me like we'll sell a house for somebody with it in the trust and when they cut the check to the trust and they go to deposit it they didn't have an account mm -hmm. in the name of the trust you cannot deposit a check made out to your trust in an account that's not owned by the trust right yeah so those little things like that mm -hmm. that you guys help people with. yeah so that's important yeah. so whoever you talk to you know whatever attorney that you're talking to should be talking to you about funding your trust because otherwise mm -hmm. it's just a document that's not not going to do you any good unless your assets are in the trust and while you're alive <coughs> you are in control of that trust so I have a lot of um, my clients clients I met with yesterday you know the the wife was just having a difficult time understanding she's like well I feel a little bit like I'm giving up control and I'm like you are taking control so by doing your planning, you are taking control because you're saying this is what I want to happen. And, and I'm in the, charge until I can't be, Yeah, right? so with the trust, you are in charge of your assets until you can no longer be in charge. And then you've said who you want to be in charge. So there's no better way to, to take control than to do your planning. Exactly. Yeah, Curtis, you had something to add. I just came to mind. Two things that, that, that come up that are huge headaches in terms of things that get overlooked. One is savings bonds that you hold the physical savings bonds, whether it's an H or an I bond, 
Right now, if you submit those to the treasury, you can't cash them at a bank anymore. That's been gone for about two years. Anybody tried to go cash in a savings bond successfully at the teller line in the last 24 months? Okay. You can't do that anymore. The only way you can redeem them is you send them into the U.S. Treasury. Right now, they will tell you it's going to take in excess of one year to redeem those or to put them in electronic form. So go ahead and get started on that today. That'll Don't be your do that. If you want to hold on to those physical bonds, you need a corporate successor trustee. Otherwise, your surviving spouse is going to spit on your grave. It's such a headache. <laughs> the other is there's a company, there, there's everybody, anybody remember the old dividend reinvestment plans, DRIPs? And you, you invest in a company directly through their DRIP, and custody of that security is not physical, but it's with a company like ComputerShare or CompuShare. ComputerShare? What is Compu it? ComputerShare. Just as big a headache trying to get that into electronic and marketable form. Yes, you can sell it through them, but it's not so easy. Guardianships, power of attorneys, trustee, I'm just telling you, those are too, too seldom seen, but when they are, you know it's going to be a headache. So if you've got savings bonds, deal with it. If, you've got, if you're in a drip, get those things into your brokerage account with Edward Jenner. Okay, so i got a hand here, a hand here, and then I'm going back there, so yes. Okay, so the question is, someone she knew passed away and they had both a trust and a will, is there any point in that? Yes, that's good. That's what you want. So when you have a trust, when I prepare a trust for somebody, we also prepare a will for them. And this type of will is referred to as a pour-over will. And so the will says, I leave everything to my trust. And the reason we do that will is it is a backup plan in case those assets don't get put Funded. into the trust they like they're missed. supposed to. So those minerals that we're talking about, the things that people may have forgotten about that don't get transferred. Now a probate is still going to be required, but the end result would be that the asset would be in the trust and distributed according to the trust. So it's, it is important to have both, but our goal is that we never have to use that will. So that's why we talk about funding your trust. And I know Stephen spends a lot of time um, on that as well with his clients. So it's very important to get those assets transferred. But if there's something that's missed, then you have that will as a backup plan. So it'll get into the trust at that point. John, did you need to add to that or Todd, use the mic, please? Was just going to back up what you said. Uh, in my mom's case, she had a pour over will, and on death, those assets become property of the trust, so there's nothing for the will to cover. You just notify the court that there was a will, and we did, and I've never been back to court on it. I handled her estate, settled it all under her living trust, and there was nothing to probate in the pour over will. Easy peasy, right? Yep, all right, so where'd my, where'd my guy up here, where do you go? Oh, yeah, that's right, sorry, Doc, yep. Uh, you stated on a trust is exempt from probate. Uh, if a home is in the name of a uh, family limited partnership, is that exempt the same way as a trust? If a property is in a family living partnership, right. is it the same thing as being in a trust? Is that what you asked? As far as probate. Probate yeah, goes. Probate. Okay. Right. So it depends on the, in, that would be owned by a different entity. So that entity would control. Now, so if the deceased partner's interest in that entity is not assigned to his trust or her trust um, 
or if the controlling documents of that partnership don't say what happens at death, then there could still be a probate, but it won't be of the house, it would be of the partnership interest. In, in other words, who, own, who owns the partnership interest for the decedent? Well, the partnership interest owns the house. I understand, but who owns the FLP? Well, it's the people it's made up of general partner and limited partners. And are those okay. limited partners? We're getting complicated, but ultimately there's an individual who has a either a legal or equitable interest in that, and you got to decide whether that either the terms of the partnership itself says on the death of a partner his shares go here or that partner if it's curtis kane who's the owner of the kane family limited partnership at my death was curtis kane the owner was or was curtis's trust the owner of those shares in that family limited partnership because that would govern where the, my shares go okay so stop that question is perfect for a workshop conversation to know what next steps do you need to take yes, yes. okay yeah that's a perfect example okay so i have one way back there in the back that chris keeps pointing at okay thank you Okay, perfect. Good. I'm glad then. Okay, perfect. So over here, yes. Say you have a trust and a pour-over will all in good shape, and Curtis and John are managing them, and you move to another state, and it. So you have a trust with a will in place. It's all in good order. You got somebody like John or Curtis or somebody responsible managing it, and you decide to move to Florida with me and live in Key West. What happens? Good question. So, and I'll, I can let Curtis speak to this too, but um, you know, unfortunately, each state has their own laws. So, when I have clients move out of state, what I will do is help them connect with an attorney that's in that state that also focuses in estate planning, like I do, um, so they can get that reviewed. And there may be some changes that need to be made. So there are some medical documents that are very state specific, so that would certainly need to be changed. Wills are pretty state specific. Um, your trust should be okay, but there are some provisions in that trust that may need to be updated um, as far as changing what state law governs the document. Yeah, move to Louisiana, you're gonna probably just rewrite it. <laughs> Just don't. <laughs> I worked in East Texas for five years, and, and part of that took us into Louisiana, where you have a, it's not English common law, it's Napoleonic law, I and mean, it's a whole different It's a whole different ballgame there. When we moved there to do real estate, and I was studying for the real estate exam, I was like, what the heck are they talking about? It was like reading a different language. Just, yeah. It used to be a joke in East Texas, they said when a Texan moves to Louisiana, the IQ in both states goes up. Oh, oh. sorry. Here's here. the deal, from a, from a trust perspective, the, the, she, she hits on sort of the legal, the, yeah. the real important things too, but also if you're moving, and many of us are, if you're going to move from Oklahoma that has a state income tax into a state that has a non-income tax, there, there are exercises that you need to make sure are done to ensure that you're no longer vulnerable to or, or responsible for state income tax in Oklahoma. So part of that's establishing residency, but also the situs of your trust. So because we report, if, if, if the trust is designated with an Oklahoma status, uh, situs, and you've been fi filing state tax returns, the state of Oklahoma is going to wonder what happened when you quit. So part of that's just form the formality of making sure all those bases are covered. The other part is there, 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 there are terminology that are probably used in most trusts that will refer to the state statutes in terms of the trust administration, 
well, 40, I don't know how many have the Uniform Trust Acts, but it's not Oklahoma. So majority, I want to say 46 of the 50 states now have what's called the Uniform Trust Act and Trust Code and the Uniform Prudent Investor Act and Uniform Principal and Income Act, all these sorts of things that are uniform among 46 states but there's four or so that don't have the uniform, so it's a different. We're out of uniform. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so before we finish, there was one question that wasn't asked that I want to make sure is answered, and because we talked about the cost of probate and the difference, but what is kind of a, a range of cost for someone that's got a normal estate, they're not dealing with big stuff, if they were going to have that done? So I brought our price list with us. <laughs> it's laminated. It's laminated? <laughs> um, but for somebody with assets under $11 million, and that's kind of the threshold right now for a single person, for a married couple, it's uh, almost $23 million, and we're talking about federal estate taxes. Um, so for just a single person, we're at around the $2,900 mark. Uh, for a married couple, we're at $3,400. Okay, hang on. So $2,900 for a single person to get their trust drawn up. Correct. $3,400 for a couple. Right. Plus all the other documents. Plus all, yeah. Right, so, that includes all those documents, yes? Right, right. Okay. So that includes a revocable living trust, a poor will, power of attorney, health care power of attorney, a living will, certificate of trust, HIPAA authorization, uh, quick claim deed for your real estate to put it into the trust, we, um, assignment of your personal property. Um, we also do what's called DocuBanks, um, and that's kind of a really neat program where it's literally kind of an emergency card you carry in your wallet, and if you were ever to become uh, an emergency situation where your spouse wasn't with you and EMS picks you up, they pull it out of your wallet, and they know immediately who your contacts are, um, and then when they get to the hospital, the hospital is able to contact contact DocuBanks and get copies of all of your health uh, care information, like your health care power of attorney, yeah. all of that information, so they know who they should be talking to. So while your kids are at home trying to figure out the code to the safe, the, it's the all there. Right, yeah. right. Okay. So it, Jennifer, are you guys in that same range? We are. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I didn't know Stephen's pricing before today, but we're our office is in line with that. And um, yeah, there are you know there are degrees no that maybe charge more and or yeah. charge yeah. less than that. But that's you know kind of we're our office is in, in line with what yeah. he charges as well. John, you're looking at me like you have something yes. you want to add. No, I just want to, add, but it depends on your situation. Everything depends on your situation. Yeah. So that's kind of what you're starting with. Okay. Our, that's our starting point. But if you've got a huge estate that we have to do a lot of stuff for, obviously that's going to be a little bit different. So keep in mind, that's why I say, I've had people tell me it's going to be thousands and thousands of dollars to do this. And then when I was, and then I found out it was less than 5,000, I was ecstatic. Under four is even better, right? And that's for the average, what I would call the average person. Okay. I, like I said earlier, I literally did the calculation of if you just have a will and you have to go through probates, it, it comes out. Big. At least ten thousand dollars cheaper to have a trust in the long run. And that's ten thousand dollars you can put towards your the best casket. You can upgrade to the Cadillac version if you want to, instead of having to get or those whoever told me last month that they were eating meals for twelve dollars instead of the twenty dollar meal. You could eat a lot more meals saving that kind of money by doing your plate. Okay, so how many of you learned something today? Yeah, right. So I know there's still questions, but we're out of time. So here's what I'm going to do. I would ask that you do a couple of things today. We always have a call to action, right? So 
please, please, please go back and review what you do or don't have. Um, if you would like to have that 30-minute consultation with one of our folks, please, on the back of the eval, check the box. But if you do that, you've got to make sure we have your information on the front or we can't call you. I had somebody tell me, I signed up for something. I'm like, well, did you fill out the thing telling us who to call? They did not. So, um, The other thing I would have you do is spread the word, please, about these things, because I will tell you that you guys are probably the most educated group in Oklahoma City, right? Right. There are other people out there that are not as educated because they're at home watching TV instead of coming out and creating an education hobby. And so invite them to come because these are important. Um, each one of these folks has a, they have a database of people a mile long. So even if they can't fill the need for you, they can give you names of people that can, including all of our sponsors. They all have this. That's why they're here because they're so well connected and that's what our goal is to make sure you get the right answers okay any questions on the eval uh, there is one more handout is the shredding thing that we're doing in march so if you've got the shredding thing and chris you're pointing your evals go to jim back there in the back my father-in-law who's wonderful with the white shirt on and um, you guys are going to hang out for a few minutes for questions at the sponsor tables back here. They're the very first sponsor tables. They've got some of their wave at them, the colleagues back here from their offices. Okay, so if you've got something of value today, give them a hand. If you have questions, we'd love to answer them. Thank you guys so much. As always, you did an amazing job. We'll see you.